When I was a medical student, I wasn't sure if my faith had a place in the way I would practice medicine. I needed to see this done well, to have it modeled for me in order to overcome my hesitation and fears. Through their example and friendship, the members of the Catholic Medical Association have inspired me and showed me that yes, this can be done. Come and see how Novus Medicus, the young members of the Catholic Medical Association, can provide you with a sense of belonging and challenge you to use your gifts as a faithful Catholic in the medical community. Visit our website, novusmedicus.org, to connect with us today and start your journey to live out your faith to the fullest in the calling of medicine. Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at MyCatholicHealthCare.org and live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Irene Alexander, a PhD Associate Professor of Theology at the University of Dallas. In the last episode, we talked about embryo adoption, the pro side of it, thinking this is a moral option. Dr. Alexander is going to talk about the con position, why she believes it's not ethical. As we mentioned in the last episode, the church has not dealt definitively with this. And so we pulled up a few documents uh, from church teaching, but first I've got a quote from Dr. Janet Smith, a moral theologian at uh, Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit. She's been uh, active in the pro-life movement for decades. Um, and she was remarking on a, a quote of John Paul II, where he said that he didn't think, well, he quoted, this is a quote from John Paul, there is no morally licit solution regarding the human destiny of frozen embryos. Her response to that was, nor is there any reason to think John Paul II had embryo adoption in mind when he remarked that. He may have believed that the only available solutions were keeping them frozen, thawing them and letting them die, or donating them to research. What do you think about that, Andrew? You know, I think she brings up a good point, and that's one of the reasons we're we're doing this series. You know, I don't know about you, Tom, but I've been really excited about this this dyad. You know, in in the past we did the two episodes on brain death, and now we're doing this, and I really like that. Obviously, we've got all these people who love our faith, very orthodox folks, trying to flush this out philosophically when the church has not spoken officially. Now, Janet so, Smith obviously is is great, so she brings up yes. a good point. How much of this was actually going on, you know, embryo adoption as an option when JP2 said that? Because, you know, we're only talking about this now. That was decades ago, right? Right. So uh, she wrote this article, I think, in uh, the fall of 2008, after the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith published a document called Dignitas Personae, or the Dignity of the Person, on certain bioethical questions. So they were talking about frozen embryos. And they said, quote, the proposal that these embryos could be put at the disposal of infertile couples as a treatment for infertility is not ethically acceptable for the same reasons which make artificial heterologous procreation illicit, that is in vitro fertilization. She, he said, they also say this practice would also lead to other problems of a medical, psychological, and legal nature, which Father McCarthy pointed out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought he did well. And Father McCarthy, I think, would completely agree with that statement, especially focusing on the treatment of infertility. Now, obviously, we're referencing Father McCarthy uh, did the other position on this issue. Um, but as a treatment of infertility, you're sharing in the intention of right. the act, which is bad. You can't do that. Verboten. But there is a separate paragraph now addressing something else in that same document. They said it's also been proposed solely in order to allow human beings to be born who are otherwise condemned to destruction, that there could be a form of prenatal adoption. So they are separating it out as treatment for infertility from adoption. And here's what they say. This proposal, praiseworthy with regard to the intention of respecting and defending human life, presents various problems not dissimilar to those mentioned above. But interestingly, they do not say that it is not ethically acceptable. Yeah. What I mean, think I, think, I think it's got to be intentional. I mean, how many drafts 
did this go through? How many eyes? You know, this is not something that they just threw out there. This was thought about by probably dozens of, if not hundreds of people. And this is the the wording they came up with. To me, it sounds like obviously we're aware of the challenges. Everybody's on the same page there. They didn't say don't do it, right? So, you know, obviously there's this is a matter of uh, philosophy and prudence and how how you're looking at it. But if it were me, and and they asked me my opinion, I would have said, hey, you guys got to come out and say it's okay to do or it's not okay to do. They had a lot of people thinking about it, and they did not tell us. <laughs> they did not tell us. I don't know why. You know. In fact, when it was released and the Vatican, Archbishop Reno Fischella. An, or Fisichella, announced that embryo adoption was still an open question. And so our bishops in the U.S. released a document in December of that year, 2008, um, which says, quote, the CDF document does not reject the practice outright, but warns of medical, psychological, and legal problems. And in fact, when we were in Denver at the CMA conference, Father Tad Baholchik took the same side that Dr. Alexander is going to take. But he is quoted as saying, there is ongoing debate, and technically, it remains an open question. Dignitas Personae expressed serious moral reservations without, however, explicitly condemning it as immoral. Okay. See, so it's, it, it seems to me that, you know, I'd like to think they want us to talk about it, right? Right. And uh, hopefully can flush this out with more information, with more science, you know, so many other things echoing back to the brain death talk, you know, the statement from the Pope was that, you know, if you can be sure they're dead, then it's a great thing to do, but that's up to the doctors. And so the way I kind of look at this is this is up to philosophers. This is up to the medical community. This is up to folks to make it clear based on science and philosophy and moral reasoning what is acceptable. And they went out of their way to say that it's still an open question. So to me, that means that we should be talking about it. I know some people in the past have said, you know, you guys shouldn't be bringing that up if it's a settled issue. And and we'll see what Dr. Alexander says, because obviously uh, Father McCarthy on the other side, his his quote that I liked was, uh, you know, if it's not forbidden, uh, then it's acceptable as kind of one way to look at rules of morality. I'd be interested to see how she she responds to that and what she has to say. Amen. And of course, before we get to Dr. Alexander, we have our medical trivia question of the day, which has the category of the uterus. Yes. <clears throat> so since today's topic includes the discussion of whether or not it's moral to implant a frozen embryo in a uterus, I'm going to ask about the relationship between a woman's heart and a woman's uterus. So very simply, in a non-pregnant woman, which is larger, the heart or the uterus? You're going to have to stay around till the end of the show for the answer, but we'll be back after this break with our special guest here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We now have our special guest with us, Dr. Irene Alexander. She's an associate professor of moral theology at the University of Dallas, who earned her Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy and Theology from the University of Scranton. She then went south to Ave Marine University, where she received a master's and PhD in moral theology. In her research, she specializes in Catholic bioethics, and she's published several scholarly papers on embryo adoption and other contemporary issues. Her work can be found in Nova et Vetera, the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly, the Lineker Quarterly, and the Josephinum. Irene, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Hi, thanks for having me today. So how did you get involved in what I used to think was an arcane subject, that of embryo adoption? Yeah, it's just over the course of my studies in moral theology, we, you know, would read through the documents of the magisterium. And I kind of became interested in this topic, just learning about in vitro fertilization, um, the moral issue and some of the aftermath of that. And um, I also kind of became interested because in a way, it's it's kind of a disputed and in some ways an open question. Right. Um, and, you know, what's interesting about the field of bioethics just in general is that the technology is constantly advancing. And for, you know, Catholic moral thinkers, you're not going to find, you know, open your Summa Theologica and here's an article <laughs> on in vitro, right? They're, these are uncharted waters. Um, and so 
they require a kind of level of thinking that involves a deep understanding from what we can learn from scripture and the fathers and the great doctors of the church. Um, but we also have to kind of carefully think through our own moral problems anew because our questions and problems in some ways were, were different from the ones that they also encountered. So I, I find this kind of field very interesting, trying to figure out how how do we understand the natural law when, when you have um, a process in which it's been so deeply dissected. Um, so, and I think, yeah. Uh, maybe Irene, to dive right into it, you're getting onto an elevator, or maybe you're at a cocktail party, like uh, you know, like we all go to all the time. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> Tell me no, more. I, no. I wish. Uh, why? Why is the implantation of a human embryo previously frozen in the uterus of a woman willing to gestate that tiny little person to birth is wrong? Why is that wrong? Yeah. So first of all, I don't know what cocktail parties you're attending, but <laughs> it usually doesn't quite come up in, in you know, just in general. But um, anyway, uh, I, I guess I would say this. In a way, it, the reasoning goes back to understanding the inseparability of the unitive and procreative dimensions of conjugal intimacy that Humana Vitae affirmed back in 1968. And, and we also see that in Donum Vitae, um, which was written a few decades later, that same logic is underneath it. Now, in a certain sense, what happens in normal conjugal relations is you have, or, you know, can happen, right? Uh, not every time, but um, a lot of the time you have a new conception. Mm -hmm. And that conception is also at the same time an impregnation, because in normal relations, those happen simultaneously. They're, they're kind of almost, I mean, we could kind of cognitively think of them um, as separate conceptually, but in reality, um, it's one thing. And so the situation with the frozen embryos, we have to be careful, I think, to very carefully distinguish the intention, which is, uh, and Dona uh, Dignitatis Personae says is praiseworthy, the intention to want to save a life from what is the actual act that you're doing? Like, what would make this wrong? And the thing that makes it wrong is that it's essentially an act of artificial impregnation. Um, and in other words, what you're doing there is you're taking something that actually belongs to spouses, to the unity of their marriage, um, in a particular way to the husband. It's the husband's role really to impregnate his wife. And so even though the, the, no, the intention here is really noble, Every time there's an embryo adoption or, or, or thinking about the possibility of this, uh, essentially what you're doing is doing an act of artificial impregnation and you're taking something that belongs to the spouses, to the unity of their marriage, right? Only husbands should impregnate their wives, but you're doing it for what's considered would be a noble reason. So I would say that's really at the crux of what what I see as, as something immoral there. Now... Irene, so the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, I think in 2008, um, or at, at least the USCCB responding to Dignus Tatis Personis, kind of said that it was a still somewhat of an open question. Um, how? Why is this an open question when IVF is totally wrong and no disagreement there? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. The reason why it's an open question, um, I think, has to do with the fact about what did the church actually say about this topic? So number one, it is a distinct question. It's a very distinct moral question. So um, it's not the same thing as IVF. It's a different type of act than IVF. Um, and the reasons why IVF is wrong are, are pretty clear. So I think it's important to recognize it's not the same. It's a distinct moral act, and we have to think about what it actually is um, and why it's different, although why there's also a similarity at the same time. But why is it an open question is because the paragraph where the church dealt with this specifically, it's in Dignitatis Personae, paragraph 19. Um, and it said, it's actually, so let me give you a little bit of the context there. It's recognizing that there's a problem of these leftover frozen mm -hmm. embryos. And the church is saying, okay, well, what are we to do with them? Um, and it first starts listing a variety of possibilities, just like 
technical possibilities. And then it goes through one by one and explains what's right, what's wrong, et cetera. The first possibility it mentioned is let's use them for research, you know, and um, and it immediately says, well, no, you can't use them for research. That'd be directly destroying them. Okay, move on to the next one. Um, another possibility that was thought of was to transfer them to, uh, uh, to couples as a treatment for infertility. Now, that's a kind of interesting one because that's different from IVF, right? Um, there, your IVF is creating a new being, but this is is transferring an already existing embryo into the womb of a of a woman who um, otherwise couldn't conceive a child, and, and it seems to me wants to conceive a child. Side note: that doesn't actually treat infertility. It's not really addressing the underlying causes of it. But they declared that that too was not ethically acceptable. That's a direct quote: not ethically acceptable. Right. For the same reasons, it says that um, links it to IVF and surrogacy. Mm -hmm. So even though they're different, they see that there's a profound connection there, even though those are different acts. One is creating a child. One is moving a child already created over to a couple that really would, would want it and is otherwise struggling. And then after that, it raises specifically in paragraph 19, embryo adoption, mm -hmm. in which it says that it's praiseworthy with respect to the intention, but there are problems with it not dissimilar to those mentioned mm -hmm. above. And so the reason why it's an open and disputed question is because it's saying there's problems here, problems of a psychological, legal, moral mm -hmm. nature, problems that are similar to surrogacy and, and IVF and all those other things, even though they're different, there's some problems here. Um, and so, but it doesn't say formally it's illicit. So that's one of the reasons why I think it it kind of leans in a negative judgment, but it's it's technically an open question. Is, and is there a hand, reason why they held back from just saying it's wrong, don't do it? Like, seems that would have been easier, you know? Well, I think they had to be able to understand why. And I think it's not, so it seems like in the, in the actual document, they, they seem to intuit something is morally problematic, but without fully explaining what that rationale might be. I mean, it's a complicated question. So I think maybe they want time to think it over. Here's some problems. It seems like it's like surrogacy, but maybe here's why it's not. It seems like it's like IVF, but here's why it's not. And well, so they- Let me ask you a similar question to the last one, but Will, just like when we talk about um, you know abortion you know, being wrong at any level, uh, the you know the new life is just at a different stage of growth and dependency. What if you know we came to the point where a woman has a you know advancing uterine cancer and the baby's three or four months along before they can live ex utero even with you know the best incubators? What if it became possible? This is just a mental exercise that even though the woman's going to lose her uterus and baby, what if another mother? could take that little baby into their uterus. Would that be wrong and for the same reasons, or is that a different type of question? Um, that is a very interesting question. I think there's a couple things going on there. They're kind of related, but also sort of different. One is that, um, you know, it, it's a... Uh, it's already considered licit, like in, in the perspective from moral theology, that if someone has like an aggressive uterine cancer and they're pregnant, um, you could do a hysterectomy and that would be an indirect abortion. Now, right. would it be great if you could somehow save that life or there is a type of artificial womb or, or something? That right. Could, That's a separate question I was going to bring up, but yes. So uh, there's a couple of things I'd say are about artificial wombs, but, but to get back to your question, I think if you transfer it to the womb of another person, uh, another woman, it does seem like that too is an act of kind of impregnating her with somebody else's child. And again, to me, that seems like it violates the unity of marriage, going back to that same thing, that part of what sexual intimacy is, is the right for spouses to confer upon each other um, motherhood and fatherhood through the dignity of conjugal union. So because that's something that belongs to the sexual act, to take something that actually belongs to it and to have somebody else take on that role and do that same thing apart from conjugal union, take something away that belongs to the exclusivity of the spouses. So it, it sounds like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just trying to understand, if that you are saying that the sexual act includes the gestation of the baby. 
Well, not exactly. Okay, so what okay. I'm saying is that um, this is a question that has come up because, mm-hmm. um, you know, some people are saying, well, look, the generative process is not really the same as conception, and so those should be considered differently. And I understand that argument. Um, what I'm saying is when you have a an act where where somebody else who is not the person's spouse and outside of conjugal union is impreg- doing an act of impregnation, that that act is something that shouldn't be done. Not necessarily so, that- so okay, define impregnation. Is impregnation just the male gamete or does impregnation somehow also include a new human being? Another, how are you using that word? Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, the funny thing is we have to almost make these very fine distinctions now because something that was integral and whole is now spliced, spliced, sure. spliced, spliced, spliced. Certainly. Um, which, is, which is horrific, really. Um, so by impregnation, we're talking about the process by which the man, um, and, and not just his, his sperm, but, uh, but that a man is making his wife uh, pregnant. That is to say... Um, has made it so that there is a pregnancy in her. And so normally that happens simultaneously with conception, right? The second you have conception, you have impregnation, right? Even before implantation. Um, but in when the, the weird thing about this being separated is that when you make a kind of transfer like that, you're, you're taking somebody who was not pregnant and then making her pregnant. Mm-hmm. And the question is, well, is that licit, right? Because that's something that does belong and it, and it seems is part of the very logic of donum vitae and dignitatis personae. The logic of, of this actually belongs to the unity of marriage and the exclusivity of, of conjugal union. So Irene, one of the interesting things that I had not heard of before, um, but when we were at the CMA conference this year, there was an onstage debate about this. Uh, one of your colleagues, Father Tad, was there defending the composition. Um, one of the things that they kind of went back and forth on was this idea of in that generativity and the rearing of children, the idea of like the wet nurse or a woman yeah. who would nurse another lady's baby for whatever reason um, as also kind of, you know, this this is not natural. It's not how uh, it is supposed to work in a perfect world, but also not illicit. Is there a connection there or is that just a red herring? Yeah, that's a great question you raise. Um, I would say this, like, you know, if, when a woman, uh, you know, let's say her, the, the mother dies in childbirth or something, there's some tragedy and she can't nurse her own baby and they need to have, you know, mother's milk, otherwise they die. Um, you could see why another woman would breastfeed uh, another person's baby. But in the act of doing that, they're not taking away something that belongs to the exclusivity of spouses. So for example, you know, the husband really doesn't have a role in breastfeeding. It's right. usually just when the baby- Carrying the baby to mom. Tell yeah, my wife right, right. No, just kidding. Here, I'm crying. Here you go. Like, yeah. um, right? no. There isn't in the order of nature and in the design for of, of our sexuality, um, something where- he has something very, a very important role in this that's somehow being taken away from him. But um, does that make sense? So that's totally. why I see it as you, something fundamentally different. Because uh, I've, I've seen that analogy before. Oh, this is just this is just like breastfeeding um, another person's child. This is just like a wet nurse when in the a nursing part is not protected under the sanctity and exclusivity of marriage, right? What I what I mean by that it has to do with the sexual act. I mean, there's a lot of things right. within. There's nothing marriage. about breastfeeding that's part of the sexual. They're separate acts. Right. There's something separate there, such that um, if I were to nurse another someone's baby, um, I'm not doing something that takes something away from, like my husband, for example. That does that make sense? Yeah. Whereas. Um, I think when you impregnate some, you know, if you impregnate a woman uh, artificially, I mean, that's why it's weird. It's, it's a sense of artificial impregnation. We've never seen yeah. this before. We, no one's ever been able to do that before. Yeah. Um, We're in the mire of moral actions because this is uh, right. obviously it's getting worse every day. I, I guess one of the things that seems to me a crux of this whole issue is, quote unquote, the marital act. Um, how would you define the marital act? 
Yeah. So given that that's protected and safe. Right. Right. Um, I would say this is the act of sexual union between a man and a woman uh, where the man, you know, gives his seed conjugally to his wife and she receives that. Um, And so there is in the act of that union, something that is unitive and something that is procreative. And I would say though, that to reflect on this a little bit deeper, right? Because Humana Vitae affirmed that these two ends are inseparable. But if you want to think about why they are inseparable, um, there's something very profound there, I think. And it's it's the reality that, um, that when a man and a woman give themselves to each other in that kind of unity, they're saying with their own bodies something like, I want unity with you. I want a family with you. And because they are the agents, right? They're they're not only insects. The material you could you could you could look at it like this. Like um, Aristotle talks about how there's different causes. There's like the material cause. There's the matter. There's an agent cause, right? The the first cause of a thing's motion. And so, like when we're talking about sex um, and the gametes and, and union, all of that, um, it's not only the fact that in the act of sex and when there's conception, you're genetically related to your child, which you are. Um, but you're also the real agents that caused your child to be. Um, and there's something important there because then a f- the man bestows upon the woman the real relation of motherhood, right? And the, the, um, the woman bestows upon the man through that union, the real relation of fatherhood. So they are genuinely co-creators with God. And that, that's part of the reason why there's a, such a malice with IVF, because like in IVF, who's the co-creator, right? right? The, the spouses, they say, here's our gametes. Now you help us to have a baby, right? But it's really the technician who unites them that literally becomes the co-creator, right? That's why it's so weird. Something that belongs fundamentally to spouses, to the exclusivity of their union, to that language of the body is given to somebody else. And that's why it's disordered. And that's why I see something similar, although it's a hard thing to say, I think, and unpopular in some some circles because it's almost like, oh my gosh, what else could be done? But I think the more important thing is to is to focus on what ultimately is true, because if we don't do that, um, we're going to end up in in the kind of bad situation we're already in. And I I, com- I completely get what you're saying. I guess just a, a follow up clarification: When does the marital act end? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. The protections of the sacredness of the marital act. Okay. So I think I get what you're saying here. Um, Really, that just to kind of tell you on the pro position, that seemed to be the crux of their argument was that, hey, you got an embryo, new DNA, new person. There's nothing about a kid running around that's still protected under the the marital act uh, sacredness. And so that act is over and boom, we're on to a new act. So that's kind of what we're going to be delving into in the second. I don't know. Should we do a cliffhanger, Tom? I know we got to take. We should do a cliffhanger. Great idea, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) We love we love the drama, but uh, come come back uh, with us on Doctor Doctor to hear the rest of this about embryo adoption here on Doctor Doctor. And we are back on Doctor Doctor with Doctor Irene Alexander, and in our last episode. Uh, just kidding. The first half of this cliffhanger style. <laughs> um, the last question was, uh, Irene, how would you define to clarify the end of the marital act and where the the sacred protections of the unitive and procreative, they end and we're on to new acts? Because that's one of the, the key distinctions that the pro side makes in this argument. Yeah, great. Thanks for that question. So, just to say what I think the pro side would say is that, look, there really is no relationship here between the marital act and embryo adoption, because it's kind of just a clinical act of moving over uh, a a life that is in need of gestation to the womb of a woman. How very Um, Thomistic of you to put it so well. Thank you. (laughs) No problem. Yeah. Thomas likes to do that. He puts the, the objection I think it's very helpful because you want to be make sure we understand all sides of the right. question. Right. Um, and so I, I understand and I even empathize with that 
that argument because it seems like the, we're not even talking about sex here. What, we're talking about just a clinical act of moving an embryo over to the womb of a woman. Um, and it seems like the con side comes along saying, oh, this is this is somehow like the marital act. And, and, um, and it's not that clear to the pro side how that's even possible. Like there's no sex involved here at all. Like, what are you even talking about? Um, And, and, and what to to accentuate this even more, a lot of times those who are against embryo adoption, you know, refer to these texts, Oh, from Donum Vitae, that one should become a father and mother only through each other than respect for the unity of marriage. And those on the pro side are saying, yeah, we agree with these, with these um, texts, you know, insofar as it, is talking about in vitro, but we just don't see why they're relevant to this issue. Okay, so what I would like to do is to explain why it's relevant. So at the crux pretty much of every um, related issue here when it comes to reproductive bioethics and a lot of these new uh, technologies, I think what's at the root here is this understanding that, um, this this is a term I came up with called conjugal agency. In other words, part of the dignity of sex, let's put it this way. How do you make determinations between um, reproductive care that is in line with the moral law versus the ones that are out of line with the moral law? And it kind of comes down to, is it substituting for the marital act, right? But when you go behind that, okay, it's basically saying, look, are the spouses themselves being the real causes of their child's coming to be? And is that happening through sex, right? So if you were to unpack what's the logic of Donum Vitae, that's it. That's it at the root. Are the spouses themselves being the real causes of their child's coming to be? And is that taking place through sex? So at every, if you look, go through in vitro fertilization, artificial insemination, all that, you know, what are authentic treatments versus what are not authentic treatments? That's really at the root. Physicians should be able to assist couples healing them from infertility, et cetera, so that they themselves can be the real agent cause. Okay. Now I say that because- Before you go on, I want to add a clarification, something I've never heard anybody talk about just came to mind because of what you were saying. So therefore, would you say that couples who do in vitro fertilization, which Andrew and I agree is not moral, we, we agree it's immoral, that when they implant that into the mother- who gave the egg, that act itself is not immoral because they are the parents who produced those gametes. So again, that's an open question. I would argue that that's also immoral because okay. who is it, who is impregnating the woman there? Okay, right. So the thing is in normal conjugal relations, and here's where I'm hoping I can answer your question. What, what does this have to do? What does embryo adoption have to do with the act of sex? In normal conjugal relations, in the natural order, Spouses cause both conception and impregnation simultaneously, right? And that's rooted in the fact that they are the agent causes of their child's coming to be, and they exercise that agency through sex. And so, um, when you when you when you look at those documents and you realize, wow, that's really the logic at its root. Now let's apply that logic to this question of embryo adoption, right? So the question is. Um, in the, is the act of artificial impregnation, is it taking something um, that belongs to the act of sex, namely that spouses themselves are the real causes of conception and impregnation, right? Is it taking something that fundamentally belongs to sex and somebody else is doing something that should only belong to the spouses? And I say the answer is yes. In the act of artificially impregnating a woman, um, you're, you are you are taking from the husband something that fundamentally belongs to him. It belongs to him as a spouse to be the one who impregnates his wife. Nobody else should be doing that. Um, I think that that belongs to, again, the agency of spouses, right? And if that agency is important, right? And I think that it's very much at the, the logic of Donum Vitae, then we have to be consistent in recognizing it. So again, uh, so the question comes down to like, what essentially is that moral object in embryo adoption? And I see it as um, it's an act of artificial impregnation, right? You're taking already conceived embryo, nobody disputes this, right? In the 
in the circles that, <laughs> that we're running here, um, that it's a real embryo. But when you move it over to the womb of that woman, you are essentially impregnating her. I mean, so she goes was- from being not pregnant to being pregnant. And it seems that that is something that does belong exclusively to spouses, something that should be done exclusively by them and only through conjugal intimacy. So the fact that this is something that belongs to sex is taken out of it and it's done by somebody who is not their spouse, it's almost like a double offense in that respect. To be to be the devil's advocate. Sure. Um, we're we're saying that the the protections that are unique and holy to the marital act extends through um, in, the kind of the implantation, obviously the formation, the embryo growth, and then probably up to birth or something. Correct. And then- that, so that's not exactly what I'm saying. What I'm saying is. Um, Basically, there's a dispute about the procreative significance. What does that mean? Does it mean only at conception or does it extend through pregnancy? And I want to challenge us here to look at this not just chronologically, like, okay, chronologically, like, okay, there's conception and then, you know, there's eight weeks pregnant, then 12, like, when does the procreative significance end? Is it after eight weeks? Is it after 10? Not like that, okay? I'm going to challenge us to think in terms of causation rather than chronology. Mm-hmm. So what I'm what I'm arguing is that in the act of impregnating a woman that that is something that does belong to the procreative significance because in the order of nature those two realities happen absolutely simultaneously by the very same agency of the same people involved. And so now this process has been fragmented but in order to try to restore that you're now um, taking something that belongs to the agency of sexual union and having another agent do it outside of the conjugal act. So, so I'm, I'm saying let's let's think about agency and and finality. Does that make sense? It does. And and it kind of uh, one thing I want to make sure we bring up that was important part of the pro it, with adoption. You know, to be a devil's advocate, could you say that part of the act of impregnating is making a woman a mother. And adoption, you know, after birth is making a woman a mother. Uh, one of the things Father McCarthy focused on a lot was that adoption is not a lesser form of parenting. And now he wasn't talking about agency. Can you speak to this at all as far as the, while not agency, very legitimate parenthood of adoptive parents and how that might extend to before birth as well? Yeah, sure. Um, So first of all, yeah, when you have an adoption of a child, um, the parents very much um, are exercising, you know, a a genuine parenthood towards the the child that they adopt. So there's definitely, um, you know, in that sense, not something less in the sense somehow morally less in that respect. I do happen to know that children who are adopted almost always still seek answers about their origins. So, and it's not because they don't believe that their adoptive parents haven't loved them enough. It's not because that reason, in fact, they're often very well loved and cared for, but there is always a a deep um, longing to know about how they came to be. And I think that's sort of natural and, and normal even. Now, I would say one thing that is um, important to clarify is that if the church at some point does say um, that that embryo adoption is something illicit, it is not in any way condemning adoption post-birth. Um, because the reason that it, that it could be found to be illicit, if it is, okay, but I'm saying if it is, it's likely for this reason, that that it has to do with taking something that belongs exclusively to the spouses and having a technician cause for the woman outside of marital intimacy. So I would say the reason would be because it violates the unity of their marriage. Now, in, in traditional adoption, there is no violation whatsoever of the unity of their marriage. Does that make sense? Because one um, makes a rightful... Um, you know, a willed adoption, whereas the other 
is doing something that is in a way contrary to that that spousal unity. Now, I think that for adoptive parents, you really do become, in other words, let, let me just clarify this. Like in Donum Vitae, it says that part of the unity of marriage is a reciprocal right to become father and mother only through each other. Now, what do they mean by that? They, they weren't saying, oh, therefore we condemn adoption post-birth, right? That's not at all what's implied by that. On the contrary, they're talking about the rightful use of our bodies, of, of the sexual intimacy um, of conjugal union. So it's true that there's a, a kind of real motherhood when someone adopts a child. In fact, it's, it's such a it's even, in some sense, it's even more loving in the sense that it's not even, you don't even have the natural bond of affection for someone, one that's your own, right? You're taking in someone for whom you don't actually don't have those, those same um, uh, natural bonds, right? But you're still, so in, in some sense, it's even really more moving, I, I would say. Um, but there, there's a key distinction there between one act that does violate, in my opinion, the natural law, and another one that in no way um, is doing anything in violation of the natural law. One has to do with a type of act that's not merely a clinical act, but one that usurps something that belongs to the spouses. The other is doing something that is not at all like that. Gotcha. That makes sense. I, I guess another kind of hypothetical, which people with philosophy, you know, everybody loves hypotheticals, say this, this lady who is pregnant uh, developed a cancer, but we now have the technology to remove the baby in whatever capacity in a in another and not a, not to be implanted into another woman, but in in an artificial womb of some kind um, until the cancer can be treated, and then the baby is reimplanted into the mother. Would that be licit? Yeah, that that's a great question. There's a number of things. Um, yeah, I'd have to re I'd have to think about that. So the, the theme of artificial uteruses, since you brought it up, um, Donum Vitae mentions this, but very briefly, and it, it says that, that, um, that they shouldn't really construct artificial uteruses. And, and I think the sense of that is, is in, the, in the sense of like an ongoing commodification of the process of, of procreation. But I could just read that to you briefly where it says- um, Yeah, production that, versus reproduction. Yeah, yeah. And it says that, that techniques of fertilization in vitro can open the way to other forms of biological and genetic manipulation of human embryos, such as attempts or plans for the fertilization between human and animal gametes, the gestation of human embryos in the uterus of animals, or the hypothesis or the project of constructing artificial uteruses for the human embryo. These procedures are contrary to human dignity proper to the embryo, and at the same time, contrary to the right of everyone to be conceived, born within marriage and from marriage. Now, I want to clarify that I think what they had in mind there is, is considering an artificial womb as like an ongoing commodification of right. alternative. So like, yeah, like, so why do we even need a woman at all? I mean, we don't, we could just take the gametes, conceive them ourselves in a Petri dish, and then just, just make this an industrialization of, of, of human birth. I mean, uh, in fact, there wouldn't even be birthdays because <laughs> no one's actually born. They'd right. just be disconnected, you know. So I think they were talking there about um, what's called like complete ectogenesis, like a complete, you know, not, not having impregnation at all sure. kind of thing. Well, and, I, and, and they're condemning that. But I think that's different from the scenario you raised where you're talking about could you perhaps – um, could there be something like an artificial womb if someone had cancer? And I think that, that there's something that that, that could be um, Yeah, I guess get, getting at the issue of embryo adoption, the putting in of uh, embryo in this situation, that lady's own embryo with her husband naturally conceived back into the womb, that actual putting in would not necessarily be wrong? I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that a little bit more. It's kind of um, it's, it seems weird to talk about all this because this is obviously very nitty gritty, and you know Thomas talks about you've got the means and the ends and several means until you get to the big end, and we're we're separating things that should not be separated, and uh, right. this is the the problem we find ourselves in. I guess yeah. as we're wrapping up in the last minute or two, um, maybe a word to to Catholics who are considering this or Catholics who have undergone this. Someone. On the pro side, said 
go for it. It's unsettled. Um, what And people who are thinking, should I do this? What would you have to say to, to those people? I mean, I would say, first of all, I just want to commend you for the, your noble heart. I mean, that someone would even think about that. Um, shows that you have a deep sensitivity and love for the human person, especially those who are unborn and you recognize the reality of that situation and, and trying to figure out intellectually and pastorally what is the best way to help. So I just want to say thank you for even being aware and um, for your noble heart. And then I guess I would also say that basically the, the church's judgment and this is from 2008, and hopefully there'll be another document at some point, um, seems, to, seems to suggest that there are real problems with it. That's the language that they use. They do not, they never said, go ahead and do it. Um, they, they considered it as a real possibility, just like they considered other things, other, what can we do for the, you know, the situation of frozen embryos. Um, and they said that while this seems praiseworthy with the intention, um, there's real problems such that uh, it seems that it cannot even be resolved. So I, I think that that should give us some pause and, and some caution. Um, I think it's probably not best to go ahead and try to do it, uh, especially given the, the church's sense that there are so many um, issues involved of a moral nature and also of a legal nature. It seems to me that the judgment definitely leans in the direction of it being negative, but it's not definitive. As I said, they never said it's illicit, but it seems like they want to think through it more before they before they give a final judgment. So for that reason, I would say maybe wait, you know, and exercise caution. Um, I think that that sounds like awesome advice. We really appreciate you being on the show. And, and we think you did a great job articulating the composition. If people want to learn more about this, especially the composition, what resources would be good? Um, yeah. I don't know if this would be helpful, but um, uh, shameless uh, self-promotion. But I, I wrote a couple uh, scholarly articles on it, which I think might uh, help to clarify. That was my goal. That's how I see my work as a moral theologian, is to try to bring clarity to the moral arguments. So in the journal Nova et Vetera, um, I have an article uh, called, um, what is the first one called? Oh, yeah, this, sorry. It's called, is artificial impregnation opposed to the unity of marriage? A new look at the question of embryo adoption. And if you've never understood the IVF issue, it, um, I explain all that as well. I think if you want to also just read the primary text, if you if you could just Google this, Dignitatis Personae. Nice. Um, it's uh, it's online on the Vatican website. Paragraph eighteen and nineteen is kind of where you could find the primary text of that. Um, but I, I would recommend both Donum Vitae and Dignitatis Personae. Those are the two encyclicals that primarily deal with reproductive bioethics. And those are the, the primary texts from the church um, about these it. really important topics. We'll, we'll go ahead and put links to those in our show notes. Dr. Irene Alexander, thank you for coming on today. And we hope to have you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. We are back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Tom? Yes, we know that women have big hearts and they have even bigger uteri when they are about to give birth. But the question is, when they're not pregnant, what's bigger, the heart or the uterus? Did you know the answer to this, Andrew? I did, but most people have not been on in, in you know, abdominal surgeries. But it was surprising the first time. I was like, hey, what's that? <laughs> and the answer is the heart is bigger uh, in volume, about twice the size, but in each dimension, only by a little bit. But with the volume, it ends up being um, twice the size of a woman's uterus. So, a non-pregnant uh, uterus, is, it looks to me like the size of a pear, maybe a big pear, you know. Right, where the heart is the size of like a fist. But I've seen some pears almost the size, but so, uh, but that's what it is. Women have big hearts. And we knew that, especially mothers. There you go. <laughs> so, Andrew, your top three takeaways from this enlightening discussion. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Dr. Alexander did a great job. And she I did. appreciated the the strict terms which she used, especially, you know, my first takeaway would be the term agency. 
that is a big uh, a big angle for the con position in this discussion was the idea of who is the active agent affecting this change. And it's a common phrase in moral theology, and it's a useful way to think of this. Um, I would say number two, uh, she encouraged everybody to look at the primary text, do your own mm-hmm. research, but not on the internet. Just go to the magisterium and uh, maybe via the internet, look at the primary texts. And that's a great place to kind of inform us about the ground rules of which everybody's talking about. And then, and then number three, I would say, this is an unnatural situation. The reason in, in my estimation that the church hasn't spoken clearly about this is this is still a new thing in the history of the church. This is unnatural. We are not supposed to be here. Um, marriage and intimacy and, you know, pregnancy and rearing children, that whole thing is not supposed to be broken up. And so therein lies the issue. You know, it's really the nature of the act. And the proposition suggests that the marital act is over when the embryo is formed. And this is a separate thing that would not have those sacred protections of the marital act. The con position states that, no, 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 the, the way you're supposed to get pregnant is through the marital act. And so these are subject to those protections as well. So that is, in my mind, my humble opinion, the crux, the disagreement. Everybody here are good people. We all want to be saints. We all want to go to heaven and we all uh, love the church and what she teaches. So hopefully we'll get some clarification in the future. But that's why this is a matter of debate, uh, because it is it's sticky and it's we're not even supposed to be thinking about this. But that is the devil attacking the family and human sexuality. And so we get into these weird situations. Good summary, Andrew. Um, I I can't wait to hear feedback on these two episodes. Maybe we'll debate other topics that are debatable. But thank you for being with us for the second half of this debate here on Dr. Doctor. If you want to search this and all other episodes we've had, you can do so on drdoctor.org. There's over 300 episodes you can search by guest or topic. And now we even offer a video version of our podcasts. Just click the YouTube link near the top of the homepage at drdoctor.org. And if you have a question or an idea for an episode topic or even a future twofer type, uh, you know, back and forth episode, go ahead and click where it says submit a question. We love good ideas. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.